Cassandras of the Constitution, Politics and the Decisions of the Supreme Court. Cassandra was a Trojan priestess in ancient Greece who was famous for warning of impending catastrophes that the Trojans ignored to their regret. A Cassandra, accordingly, is said to be a person who warns of a threat that later comes true, but who is disregarded by the contemporaries that she is trying to help. In Supreme Court history, there have been Cassandras of the Court who have dissented in the worst Supreme Court cases in American history, have been outvoted by the other justices, and so have been disregarded and have since been considered prescient and correct in their positions as the nation and the Constitution have evolved. In 1907, Justice Charles Evans Hughes famously declared, The Constitution is what the judges say it is, meaning the nine, or actually five, justices who make up the Supreme Court majority. But as the national history evolves, the justices tend to say different things, and so the Constitution's meaning changes with the political winds. All of this suggests that the justices are politicians in robes, which is actually quite correct, since they are often, if not usually, chosen for political reasons and not for their judicial acumen. In this presentation, as part of Constitution Day 2022, we listen to three such Cassandras. The first two, great dissenters against two of the worst Supreme Court cases in American history, Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896, which gave the Supreme Court's seal of approval on Jim Crow laws by the states segregating African Americans, the dissenter here was John Marshall Harlan, a Kentuckian on a northern court, Harlan speaking against Jim Crow in clarion calls for racial justice, though in a losing effort. Next, we will hear from Frank Murphy, who dissented from the Supreme Court's notorious decision upholding the internment of Japanese Americans in concentration camps USA during World War II, the case of Korematsu versus U.S., a case involving the internment of Japanese Americans, two-thirds of whom were American citizens by birth, like most of you who are listening to this recording. Because he was outvoted, Murphy's clarion calls for justice made him a loser in a case that has set a precedent that has never been overturned that puts the seal of Supreme Court approval for the future incarceration of American citizens in concentration camps, incredible as that might seem. Finally, we hear from Justice Sonia Sotomayor in her dissenting views on what were obviously the opinions of the majority of the justices in the Dobbs case of 2021-2022, overturning Roe v. Wade. The jury is out on whether Dobbs will be regarded as one of the worst Supreme Court cases in American history, but what is not in dispute is that millions of Americans have regarded that decision, like Korematsu and Plessy, to have been, rightly or wrongly, 
Responses to Political Pressures by Judges Acting Like Politicians in Robes. Playing the role of John Marshall Harlan is a LibriVox narrator for a LibriVox recording of the Harlan descent. I play the role of Frank Murphy, and Justice Sonia Sotomayor speaks for herself as the last Cassandra of the story. All recordings are in the public domain. In 1896, when a Supreme Court composed predominantly of Northerners upheld the constitutionality of racial segregation by state law under the notorious doctrine of separate but equal, Harlan had this to say, warning the court and condemning the racial underpinnings of the court's decision. The white race deems itself to be the dominant race in this country. And so it is, in prestige, in achievements, in education, in wealth, and in power. But in view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior, dominant, ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind, and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The law regards man as man, and takes no account of his surroundings, or of his color, when his civil rights, as guaranteed by the supreme law of the land, are involved. It is therefore to be regretted that this high tribunal, the final expositor of the fundamental law of the land, has reached the conclusion that it is competent for a state to regulate the enjoyment by citizens of their civil rights solely upon the basis of race. In my opinion, the judgment this day rendered will, in time, prove to be quite as pernicious as the decision made by this tribunal in the Dred Scott case. It was adjudged in that case that the descendants of Africans who were imported into this country and sold as slaves were not included nor intended to be included under the word citizens in the constitution and could not claim any of the rights and privileges which that instrument provided for and secured to citizens of the united states that at time of the adoption of the constitution they were considered as a subordinate and inferior class of beings who had been subjugated by the dominant race and whether emancipated or not, yet remained subject to their authority, and had no rights or privileges but such as those who held the power and the government might choose to grant them. The recent amendments of the Constitution, it is supposed, had eradicated these principles from our institutions. But it seems that we have yet, in some of the states, a dominant race, a superior class of citizens which assumes to regulate the enjoyment of civil rights common to all citizens upon the basis of race. The present decision, it may well be apprehended, will not only stimulate aggressions, more or less brutal and irritating, upon the admitted rights of colored citizens, but will encourage the belief that it is possible, by means of state enactments, to defeat the beneficial purposes which the people of the United States had in view when they adopted the recent amendments to the Constitution, by one of which the blacks of this country were made citizens of the United States, 
and of the states in which they respectively reside, and whose privileges and immunities as citizens the states are forbidden to abridge. Sixty millions of whites are in no danger from the presence here of eight millions of blacks. The destinies of the two races in this country are indissolubly linked together, and the interests of both require that the common government of all shall not permit the seeds of race hate to be planted under the sanction of law. What can more certainly arouse race hate? What more certainly create and perpetuate a feeling of distrust between these races than state enactments which, in fact, proceed on the ground that colored citizens are so inferior and degraded that they cannot be allowed to sit in public coaches occupied by white citizens? That, as all will admit, is the real meaning of such legislation as was enacted in Louisiana. The sure guarantee of the peace and security of each race is the clear, distinct, unconditional recognition by our governments, national and state, of every right that inures in civil freedom, and of the equality before the law of all citizens of the United States, without regard to race. Forty-eight years later, in the midst of the Second World War, the Supreme Court bowed to the military in the case of Korematsu versus U.S., ratifying what one vice president later called the worst violation of civil liberties in American history, the internment of 120,000 Japanese Americans in concentration camps without charge or trial for the duration of the Second World War. Justice Frank Murphy, once a politician himself, condemned the politics and racism of the court's action as follows. This exclusion of all persons of Japanese ancestry, both alien and non-alien, from the Pacific Coast area, on a plea of military necessity in the absence of martial law, ought not to be approved. Such exclusion goes over the very brink of constitutional power and falls into the ugly abyss of racism. The military necessity which is essential to the validity of the evacuation order thus resolves itself into a few intimations that certain individuals actively aided the enemy, from which it is inferred that the entire group of Japanese Americans could not be trusted to be or remain loyal to the United States. No one denies, of course, that there were some disloyal persons of Japanese descent on the Pacific coast. Similar disloyal activities have been engaged in by many persons of German, Italian, and even more pioneer stock in our country. But to infer that examples of individual disloyalty prove group disloyalty and justify discriminatory action against the entire group is to deny that under our system of law individual guilt is the sole basis for deprivation of rights. Moreover, this inference, which is at the very heart of the evacuation orders, has been used in support of the abhorrent and despicable treatment of minority groups by the dictatorial tyrannies which this nation is now pledged to destroy. To give constitutional sanction to that inference in this case, However well-intentioned may have been the military command on the Pacific coast, 
is to adopt one of the cruelest of the rationales used by our enemies to destroy the dignity of the individual and to encourage and open the door to discriminatory actions against other minority groups in the passions of tomorrow. No adequate reason is given for the failure to treat these Japanese Americans on an individual basis by holding investigations and hearings to separate the loyal from the disloyal, as was done in the case of persons of German and Italian ancestry. Nor is there any denial of the fact that not one person of Japanese ancestry was accused or convicted of espionage or sabotage after Pearl Harbor while they were still free, a fact which is some evidence of the loyalty of the vast majority of these individuals and of the effectiveness of the established methods of combating these evils. It seems incredible that under these circumstances it would have been impossible to hold loyalty hearings for the mere 112,000 persons involved, or at least for the 70,000 American citizens, especially when a large part of this number represented children and elderly men and women. Any inconvenience that may have accompanied an attempt to conform to procedural due process cannot be said to justify violations of constitutional rights of individuals. I dissent, therefore, from this legalization of racism. Racial discrimination in any form and in any degree has no justifiable part whatever in our democratic way of life. It is unattractive in any setting, but it is utterly revolting among a free people who have embraced the principles set forth in the Constitution of the United States. All residents of this nation are kin in some way by blood or culture to a foreign land yet they are primarily and necessarily a part of the new and distinct civilization of the United States. They must accordingly be treated at all times as the heirs of the American experiment and as entitled to all the rights and freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution. So Frank Murphy, in his dissent in Korematsu versus United States, Murphy was on the losing side of this case, of course, and so was a Cassandra in a case that legalized concentration camps USA during the Second World War. Finally, in December 2021, seeing which way the political winds on the court were blowing, Justice Sonia Sotomayor correctly predicted that she would be a Cassandra in the upcoming court decision on abortion, the Dobbs case, which did indeed overturn the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973. Forecasting her dissent, she too warned the court that many Americans would regard the Dobbs decision as a political one, just as they had rightfully regarded the earlier decisions in Plessy and Korematsu and that the Supreme Court's reputation would pay the price. Here, Sotomayor. What hasn't been at issue in the last 30 years is the line that Casey drew 
of viability. There has been some difference of opinion with respect to undue burden, but the right of a woman to choose, the right of, to control her own body, has been clearly set for uh, since Casey and never challenged. You want us to reject that line of viability and adopt something different. Fifteen justices over um, 50 years have, or I should say 30 since Casey, have reaffirmed that basic viability line. Four have said no, two of them members of this court, but 15 justices have said yes of varying political backgrounds. Now, um, the sponsors of this bill, the House bill in Mississippi, said we're doing it because we have new justices. The newest ban that Mississippi has put in place, the six-week ban, the Senate sponsor said we're doing it because we have new justices on the Supreme Court. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts. I, I, I don't see how it is possible. It's what Casey talked about when it talked about watershed decisions. Some of them, Brown versus Board of Education it mentioned, and this one, have such an entrenched set of expectations in our society that this is what the court decided, this is what we will follow, that, the, that we won't be able to survive if people believe that everything, including New York versus Sullivan, um, I could name any other set of rights, including the Second Amendment, by the way, there are many political people who believe the court erred in um, seeing this as a personal right as, the, as opposed to a militia right. If people actually believe that it's all political, how will we survive? How will the court survive? So much that's not in the Constitution, including the fact that we have the last word, Marbury versus Madison. There is not anything in the Constitution that says that the court, the Supreme Court, is the last word on what the Constitution means. It was totally novel at that time. And yet, what the court did was reason from the structure of the Constitution that that's what was intended. And here in Casey and in Roe, the court said there is inherent in our structure that there are certain personal decisions that belong to individuals and the states can't intrude on them. We've recognized them in terms of the religion parents will teach their children. We've recognized it in, um, in their ability to educate at home if they choose. They just have to educate them. We have recognized that sense of privacy in people's choices about whether to use contraception or not. 
we've recognized it in <coughs> their right to choose who they're going to marry. I fear none of those things are written in the Constitution. <coughs> they have all, like Marbury versus Madison, been discerned from the structure of the Constitution. Why do we now say that somehow Roe versus Casey is Roe and Casey are so unusual that they must be overturned? All three of these Cassandras of the court agreed on one thing. The Supreme Court, because it was an unelected institution and the only branch of government that was permitted to claim that it could interpret its own powers, was heavily dependent on public opinion for its legitimacy. And public opinion, in turn, depended on the court honoring its traditions and its precedents and avoiding the image of being just another political branch of the government. You, the citizen, get the final word on how well it has fared in this effort, one that in history, at least, it has often failed to strike the necessary balance. Thanks for listening.